As was mentioned previously, it is a delight and a blessing that we each have tonight to come together as the shades of evening on this Lord's Day begin to gather about us and to appreciate the great blessings that God has afforded us this day, the health that we each have enjoyed to allow us to assemble and magnify His name. And as was also mentioned in the announcements earlier, again, my family and I are very appreciative of your prayers upon our behalf as we approach this gospel meeting next week at the Jericho Congregation in White County. And certainly we are very blessed to have here able and capable men who will stand in the Bible class hour or in the pulpit and deliver marvelous lessons, I'm sure. And as they do that, to encourage and to edify each of those gathered here, we certainly look forward, my family and I, to being able to soon be back with you, of course. And next Lord's Day, as was mentioned, it'll be Brother, Brothers Lester and Trail and at, at night. Brother Roger didn't make note of the fact he would be speaking during the evening hour, but he will be the one uh, preaching next Sunday night. Very, very thankful for all the men here at Pippin who can so capably and ably carry out that part of the worship. For the last three Sunday evenings, counting tonight, we have been looking into the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. And as we have done that, we have learned a number of things about that book, not the least of which is the fact that it's somewhat a misunderstood book in some ways. It's quite often overlooked and sometimes even neglected. It stands amongst the major prophets of the Old Testament, but yet in terms of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Sometimes we know less about Lamentations than we do some of those other books. We have attempted to remedy that a bit in this series of lessons. Lamentations has but five chapters, and therefore it isn't that lengthy a book to read. But oh, what great lessons are to be found in it. And one by one, we've attempted to extract a few of them, to shed the spotlight upon them, and to be encouraged as we have listened to what God through Jeremiah said so long ago. It is true that the book was not written in the happiest of circumstances. After all, Jerusalem had just been taken captive. The situation was dire indeed. But nonetheless, there was a bright and shining light that shone on the horizon. They need not forget that fact. And as long as they would be appreciative of it and listen with kindness and with obedience to that which Jeremiah proclaimed, they could nonetheless enjoy at some future time the greatness of God's blessings. It will be to that thought we'll turn our lesson especially before we close it tonight. We have looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3 so far. We have learned a number of things, but tonight let's turn to chapters 4 and 5. As we do that, you probably would have noted from the reading that Brother Cale read just a moment ago that it still sounds a bit challenging. It still sounds as if directly... It's almost as if God was directly affirming to them the character and nature of what they had done, their sin. Let us see what God holds out for them, though, if they would recognize that fact and turn, in fact, to Him as they should. With regard to those ideas in mind, let's look then into chapter 4, and verses 6 through 10 will be our lesson text for this particular part of our lesson tonight. I have entitled it, The Dire Consequences from Sin. This would be a very rather valiant lesson for each of us to this day as well. I would invite your attention with me as we read verses 6 through 10 of Lamentations chapter 4. As we do that, listen carefully as we hear God through Jeremiah speak about what a transition has taken place. 
For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands stayed on her. Her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. Their visage is blacker than a coal. They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaveth to their bones. It is withered. It is become like a stick. They that be slain with a sword are better than they which be slain with hunger. For these pine away, stricken through with want of the fruits of the field. The hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. I have begun this discussion by placing in quotation marks the word misplaced. The children of Israel, as we learn from this passage, had placed their confidence and their trust in something that was unable to ultimately provide for them the provision and the security that they would need to enjoy a niceness and a pleasantness in life upon this earth. They had trusted, as the chapter begins, in a number of things, not the least of which was their money. They placed their trust often in the gold that was found inside that temple in Jerusalem. They placed their confidence in the ornate work of wood and metal and the other things that were so extravagant inside that building. And the simple fact is, as you notice in verses 1 and 2, that gold had become dim. Quite frankly, the gold had by and large been stolen. Nebuchadnezzar's armies had hauled it off to Babylon. It wasn't even to be seen in Jerusalem anymore. Their money, you see, wasn't able to preserve them. And it wasn't able to save them. And isn't it interesting to ask the conclusion of that for your day and mine today? Isn't it sad when quite often even the church has placed its confidence and its trust in something that can't save it? A building will not save us in the day of judgment. The ornateness of the carpet, the finery of the pews, none of that is going to make any difference in the final analysis on the day of judgment. We cannot place our confidence and our trust and our reliability upon a man, a building, a parking lot, a roof, none of that. Our trust and confidence must be simply and solely upon the greatness of God's revelation and the special message through His Son. Christ Jesus is the Lord. And when we lift the banner of Christ high and His church in all its purity, then we should be directed in a way where our trust isn't misplaced like theirs was. Can you imagine the tears that must have streamed down some of their faces when they saw the soldiers burn that temple? after hauling away the golden vessels and the finery of its silver, then to watch them ransack it and burn it to the ground. The very place that had been the citadel of their hope was gone. May you and I be far wiser and to place our confidence and our hope not in a building, not in a man, but to place it in a safe refuge and the wholesome hands of the God of heaven. For hadn't the Lord so often asserted, As you'll notice, that great invitation stated by Jesus, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As Jesus uttered those words so long ago now, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Isn't it still amazing how He issued one of the finest, 
most direct, and yet the most compelling invitations of all. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He did promise to give rest. He promised that for those who would in fact come to Him, following that invitation He had uttered, that He would provide for them the rest of life with the understanding that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It is to be noted then that Jerusalem needed to learn that valiant lesson. And though we may not see its fullness in Lamentations, there are other Old Testament prophets that will make it plain. They did learn their lesson. They learned to put their trust not in a building, not in a man, but in the God of heaven. Prophets such as Habakkuk, prophets such as Haggai, others like Malachi also help us to learn the fact that they did appreciate that message. And may you and I in wisdom appreciate the same yet today. When one looks then at the dire circumstances of sin, perhaps there's another way in which one could look upon that thought. Here there were so many in ancient Israel who did not consider sin to be that great of a problem. They looked upon it with lightness and with triviality. And yet today, isn't it still true that many in our land do that? Some even in the church do that. When certain subjects or certain issues are raised in a discussion in even a church setting, there are some who would be very quick to say, that's not that big a problem really. And maybe it involves divorce and remarriage, wishing to shy away from what the Bible has to say about it rather than potentially offend someone. Friend, whatever the Scripture has asserted is vitally important to each and every one of us, be it that subject or any other. And thus we need to be happily willing to simply speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Holy Scriptures are silent. And if we shall do that, we too will find that we will ever understand the dire circumstances that can come to those who will stray away from the pathway of truth and into the understanding that sin isn't so bad from their point of view. But maybe another lesson, also taken from this same Lamentations chapter 4. One of the things we learn as chapter 4 draws near its conclusion is that the children of Israel had a bit of a problem with comparison. Let's see what that issue was. Beginning in verse number 13 and continuing all the way through the end of the chapter, we find a number of other nations mentioned along with the children of Israel. And we shall find that that mention is in fact in accordance to the following set of ideas. I've tried to highlight it by noting one of the nations mentioned, that of Edom. The Edomites were, of course, the descendants of Esau. They were a group of people who were as shallow, as profane, and as mundane as their forebear had been. Remember that he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans, and they, in many ways, were as shallow as he was. And they, too, as we shall readily learn, had little appreciation for the things of God. They, in fact, had a great disdain for the children of Israel. The Edomites, it seems, sought all kinds of occasions whereby they could bring harm, damage, or even other kinds of affliction to the very people of Israel. That even happened with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem. I would invite you to read with me verses 21 and 22 of Lamentations chapter 4 and listen to one of the things that God has to say about the Edomites. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. 
the cup also shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken and shalt make thyself naked. The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. Edom, we readily learn from this passage as well as a few others. It is true that in Jeremiah chapters 50, 50, and 51, much is said about the Edomites. The little book of Obadiah says much about them. And putting those two together, as well as the text before us, we learn that the Edomites had assisted Babylon in the destruction of Jerusalem. Believe it or not. It, you see, was just more than the Babylonian armies. The Edomites had actually assisted them. They had offered a helping hand to Nebuchadnezzar's armies in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the captivity of the children of Israel. It is with that thought in mind that here we learn that the prophet rather directly says again the following, O daughter of Edom, he will discover thy sins. And did you notice that the word iniquity was mentioned? We learn thus something rather interesting, do we not? It would have been easy for the children of Israel as the captivity was overrunning them to say, But God, aren't we more righteous than they are? Why not punish the people of Edom? After all, we at least attempt to serve thee. Why not punish them instead of us? Do you notice how that kind of comparison is never mentioned here? Because there's no place for any kind of comparison like that. It is true, isn't it? that God did punish the children of Israel for their sins. Note in particular verse number 12 and verse 11 of chapter 4. The Lord hath accomplished His fury. He hath poured out His fierce anger and hath kindled a fire in Zion and it hath devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. For some, it was unthinkable that what had happened had just happened. Amazing, isn't it? Here was a group of people who perhaps were willing to compare themselves to the Edomites. But God, aren't we as good as them? They aren't being punished. As you notice, that easily has some lessons for us today. Isn't it true that some Christians will say, Well, I'm just as good a Christian as he is. I'm just as good as she is. I do as many good works as he does or she does. I attend as many services as they do. You see, the New Testament as well as the Old does not allow you and me to judge our righteousness by comparing it to somebody else. Every individual has been given a different set of talents and abilities. And for that reason, the duties God expects of each of us are different. That other person may be doing all that he can do. But you and I may be able to do more, and God will expect more of us. We learn in 1 Peter 4 verse 10 that each of us should minister according to the gift that God has given us. What you may be able to do may be far different than what I can. And thus for me to compare myself to you is a great mistake on my part. And it shows some immaturity in spirituality on my part but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We read in 2 Peter 3.18. You'll notice here Israel made a big mistake. 
thinking that they could compare themselves with Edom or anybody else. God expected them to follow Him. He was, and that law He gave them the standard. There are other occasions in the New Testament when others are warned about that kind of thinking. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 18, Paul said, Not that we shall think of ourselves as according to others, but we think of ourselves according to the revelation of God. Isn't it any wonder then that we hold up the blessed Scriptures? This is the perfect law of liberty. It is that mirror spoken of in James 1.25 into which we can look and it will tell us how complete we are or how incomplete we are. We must then be very cautious and careful in comparing ourselves with others. For mortal human, human beings, we each are in the context of being sinners and are in need of the forgiveness offered through the greatness of the blood of Christ. We can rest assured of this fact. Just as surely as Edom would be punished. Notice again verse 22. So too, if you and I do not live rightly before God, regardless what comparison we've made with others, we will feel the wrath of God and we will be punished. Thus in wisdom, may we be ready to say, as was done in Luke 17, when we've done all that we're commanded to do, we are still unprofitable servants. And ever in need of the guidance and direction offered by God through His Word, and in that sense we each stand in such impressive need of that which we learn in Luke 9.23, as well as so many other things that we're about to read next. In fact, in continuing with this thought, there are some more things that perhaps can now be appreciated. When we think about the punishment that comes with sin, regardless of the way in which I might have compared myself to others, isn't it the case we read in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God stands absolutely true and timeless. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 His judgment will be completely and absolutely accurate and precise. May we then live each day not comparing ourselves to what someone else does or doesn't do, but comparing to what God through His Word teaches Lesson number three. You'll notice that as we come to Lamentations chapter 5, we encounter a particular passage in verse 7 that has been no small source of difficulty throughout the years. It would do us well to consider it with some care. The verse, in fact, verse number 1 begins, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. We have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that doth deliver us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. And at that point we'll pause. It is verse 7 that I would ask you to consider with me. Because again it says, Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. 
And many have been the individuals, persuaded by John Calvin perhaps, but nonetheless individuals who have used this as one passage in which they say one generation thus bears the guilt of a previous one. And thus, chasing that back through the centuries, one ends up at Adam. And so they're quick to say, all of us bear the guilt of Adam's sin. We're born in sin, they claim, by virtue of that fact. And as such, we all inherit what is called that original sin. What does this passage teach to us and for us? Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. As you noted as we read the context... In it, we find a special mention of the dire circumstances in which the children of Israel now were. They mentioned the fact they were without water. They made mention of the fact that their food was supply was running low or completely gone. You noticed in verse 2, their inheritance was now occupied by someone else. Their houses were occupied by aliens. They didn't people from outer space, by the way. That's those that were not native to that part of the world. They weren't Israelites. In light of all of that, he now comes to verse 7. Our fathers have sinned. The inspired writer makes note then that the previous generation had committed great sin. In one way, they had failed to heed the warnings of God. God had sent them one prophet after another, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all of them, urging them to repent, urging them to turn back to God, urging them to not trust in temples and in gold, but urging them to freely give their life over in obedience to God and that God would preserve them and the enemy would not overwhelm them. But they had refused that message. You notice they themselves had turned to the Egyptians, verse 6. They had turned to the Assyrians. As we learn near the end of the book of Jeremiah, these people, rather than relying on God, they begged Egypt to come and help them. Help us fight off the Babylonians. They begged the people of Assyria and others to come and be their aid rather than turning to the one source who had promised, I will help you if you will obey my word. We find in all of that our fathers have sinned. They had rebelled against the God of heaven. They'd refused His message. They'd turned their back upon Him. And as rebels, our fathers have sinned and are not. One might now ask, in light of the sin of those fathers, what had happened to the fathers? They'd been slain or taken captive. They no longer were in Jerusalem. They'd been hauled off by Nebuchadnezzar. They had in fact been slain with a sword, one or the other. But they were not indeed. But that brings us to the closing part of the verse. And we have borne their iniquities. As we give thought to what Jeremiah was exclaiming in that passage, he is not saying that that present generation bore the guilt of the sin of the previous generations. That simply doesn't harmonize with what he had said in chapter 1 of the book. But what he was saying is this, the mistakes that our fathers have made, we now are in part paying for it. We are in Jerusalem too. I'm sorry, we have been taken away from Jerusalem. We are in captivity despite the fact that we perhaps were young when it was taken captive. You notice they were also paying a severe penalty because of the sins of the fathers. And that reminds us today of where each of us as adults stand. If you and I fail, 
if we mislead our youngsters and our children and we make grand mistakes in a number of ways, they may bear some consequences for what we do. If we make those kinds of mistakes, they may in part have to pay for it. They may suffer because of it. And they may find that the way is rather difficult and hard. It still is true that the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. Not only is that true for the one that commits the transgression, but others may have to suffer some consequences for it. But they do not suffer the guilt of it. My children will not go to hell because of any sin that I've committed. Neither will they go to heaven for any faithfulness that may have been mine. They will stand on their own just as you and I shall. Isn't it still true from Romans 14, 12, So then every one of us must give account of himself to God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Isn't it still interesting how that the inspired apostle used a present tense pronoun, his body. Whatever that person or individual has done, he or she shall give account before God for it. In Revelation 22, 12, we notice one last time that the inspired writer John says that we each will be judged according to his works. Your works will be those by which you should be judged, and my works will be the ones by which I shall be judged. Isn't it comforting to know that that is the state of affairs? And Ezekiel had to relay a similar message. In Ezekiel 18, verse number 20, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. It might be in light of that verse which summarizes this thought so well that we could recall the closing verse to Hosea 14. It is verse 9 of that chapter in which Hosea asked the question, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. With that thought in mind, it does bring us then to the closing lesson, the fourth and final one for tonight, as well as the closing one for our series of lessons on the book of Lamentations. I'm sure all along through this series, you have noted that there's a great deal of bleakness and somewhat of an unpleasantness to the book of Lamentations because the circumstances were so difficult. Jerusalem taken, captivity before them, the difficulties of a foreign land, the temple destroyed. It is true, though, that we have a bright beacon before we close the book a shining horizon to which we can point our attention as well as the one to which their attention was pointed. It's housed near the close of chapter 5. It is to that occasion that I would ask you to read with me. Let's begin reading in verse 19 of Lamentations chapter 5. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. Our focus will primarily be verse number 21 of that passage. 
Because isn't it interesting in the midst of all this seemingly dark message, we do find a ray of hope. And God is always that way, isn't He? He always will hold out a ray of hope, an oasis, if you please, on the desert of sorrow and sin. And that oasis often holds within it the nugget of what will ultimately be a great remnant of return and faithfulness to God. When the situation of the great flood came in Genesis chapter 6, the whole world destroyed except eight people. But what a ray of hope that was to find a just man perfect in his generations, Genesis 6 verses 8 and 9. In the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah, we find that Lot was able to escape. We find that ray of respect, of consideration with regard to what could be. As we come to the New Testament, we find instances in which again we see that case of a ray of hope uttered. So often in Revelation we find darkness, dragons, beasts, representative of evil, the working of devil and the, and the various matters of evil. But yet isn't it tremendously comforting to find that there is that blessedness. For isn't it true we often will see rise up that great woman, let's say, or the child in chapter 12 of Revelation. Or we'll see a bit later the crown that rests upon the head of the faithful. We'll see the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. We'll see the golden city in chapter 21 that comes down out of heaven. A place where, in fact, it needs no light because God and the Savior are all the light it'll ever need. God always, you see, provides a ray of hope in the desert in the midst of such blackness and darkness. As we close the book of Lamentations... It is true that in chapter 4, verse 11, God had punished mightily for Israel's sin. She was in the midst of feeling the affliction, the persecution and difficulty that came with that. But might we notice, in the first verse we read just a moment ago in verse 19, the inspired writer did not blame God for that. You'll notice he said, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. God is holy. He always has been. He always will be. He's absolutely right and righteous. Israel thus could not lay the blame at the foot of God. Why have you let this happen to us? God punished their sin. His throne is something on which He still reigns in regal royalty, and He reigns in complete sovereignty. The world today needs to learn that lesson, and the church in particular needs to appreciate it. God still rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. It is with that thought in mind that we notice that again, the inspired writer didn't question God about His punishment of Israel. He said, Thou, O God, reignest on Thy throne. And He does so as verse 19 closes from generation to generation. Then in verse number 21, we come to this thought. Turn Thou us unto Thee, O Lord. For all the difficulties, for all the terrible situations that Israel was now in, the final and great plea was, Turn us unto you, God, for in you we will find our hope. In you we will find our help. In you we will find our guidance. In you we will find the only thoroughfare that shall lead us out of this captivity back to where we would like to be. It is a thankful enterprise that in the Old Testament record, not here in Lamentations, but in other places we do learn about that remnant. 
And I chose that as part of that title. The children of Israel were allowed to return from captivity. A remnant was allowed to come back. I'm sure as they had entered into captivity, it looked as if their hope was gone forever. Never again able to return to Jerusalem and the lovely climes of that place. But 70 years were going to elapse. And when it did, a Persian monarch by the name of Cyrus will sign an edict in Ezra chapter 1 and allow the ones that want to, to return to Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 2, we have a listing by way of number of some of those that returned. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who supports remnants? That we have a God who is lovingly merciful with regard to remnants? And today, let's make an application of that to our lives. Think with me about the nature of sin. All of us have been there. All of us, in fact, are in need of a restoration when it comes to our life in sin. Many of those before whom I stand tonight have enjoyed the beauty of baptism, and you have passed through that thoroughfare of restoration. You had your sins forgiven, and you remember what it felt like to enjoy that moment. As you and I give thought to the nature of restoration from sin, if there's one or more tonight in need of that in your life, why not let the plea of your life be the one in verse 21? Turn unto God. He's the only hope you'll ever have. Without Him, you cannot make it through this life in a way that will make you justified at the day of judgment. You can't proceed in a way that at judgment you shall be sanctified. You will be found wanting. You'll be found lacking in those matters that will ultimately be needed to lead one to heaven. Turn us unto God, and we shall be turned, renew our days as of old. To one or more who might need a restoration. Maybe you have been a faithful Christian, but you no longer are. Maybe you need to be renewed like that verse says. To come back to your first love, and to again enjoy the fruitful benefits of laboring in the kingdom of God, the vineyard that's so productive and fruitful. You see, isn't it a good thing that God is a God of restoration, that He's a God of remnants? If He didn't allow us, by the virtue of the death of His Son and His Son's blood, there would be no hope for us. All of those that went into Babylonian captivity, but who didn't want to return, they were able to stay in Babylon. Don't want to stay in the world of sin. Make up your mind tonight that you want to leave that world, no matter how appealing it may look, leave it behind and come back to your heavenly Father. That prodigal son in Luke 15 reminds us about how special returns can be. That son had wasted his substance in riotous living. He had gone off and been very poor in terms of his dutifulness concerning his stewardship. He'd wasted all that dad had given him. He found himself in great want, ready even as it were to feed the swine or to partake of the husks that he was feeding them with. But then it says he came to his senses, Luke 15, 24. He finally began to think properly and rightly. And upon that consideration, he said, I'm going to return the servants in my father's house have it better than this. Satan can pull the wool over our eyes if we let him. He'll make you think things are well in the world of sin when it's not. Oh, it's not. It's a world of sadness, affliction, terribleness because the great bounty of God isn't with you. 
If you need to make that renewal and return tonight, let the closing thought of Lamentations guide you to do that. And that leads us to note one final thing. That restoration from sin for any one of us is possible, but we have to be willing to walk the road of forgiveness and obedience to do it. And to be sure, that roadway passes by some difficult things. First of all, there's the valley of self-denial. You can't continue to cling to self. We must be self-effacing. We must be self-denying. Jesus did say, didn't He, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The first order of business is to put self behind. All of self's pride, all of self's desires, and simply want to be right with God. If you're willing to walk through that valley, the second thing is complete obedience then to what God has said. Heaven has promised to those to obey Hebrews 5 verse 9. Though things in Lamentations have looked awfully dark at times, we've been able to end on a pleasant note, the return of a remnant. And tonight, if you'd like to be amongst that few who are able to stand rightly before God in this world of six and a half billion people, the majority are lost, the Scriptures say so. If you would like to put yourself in that minority that's right before God, why not tonight? Set all the pleasures of self beside and simply come desiring to be what God would want you to be. If we could help you in either of the ways we mentioned before, perhaps praying for forgiveness of your sins if you've already been a Christian, or one who would desire to be immersed in baptism, why not let us know either of those things, and we'll be happy to assist while together we stand and while we sing.